Welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by the team of Resolve Asset Management, where evidence inspires confidence. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in the mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everyone in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Mike Philbrick, Adam Butler, Rodrigo Gordillo, and Jason Russell are principals of Resolve Asset Management. Due to industry regulations, they will not discuss any of Resolve's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by the principals are solely their own opinion and do not express the opinion of Resolve Asset Management. This podcast is for information purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For more information, visit investresolve.com. Well, good afternoon, all. Joining us again for Resolve Riffs, having a little fun today. And uh, I just want to remind everybody before we get started that um, the information contained in these uh, sort of Resolve Riffs happy hour type uh, Friday discussions is not not intended for not intended for uh, th- that being advice. And um, you know we're going to talk about topics. Uh, we're we're going to uh, share potentially sites that whether they be ours or other people's sites or downloads and things like that. We believe them to be accurate. If they're not accurate, again, you're going to have to do your own sleuthing to check everything that we might talk about. Anything that might be construed as a recommendation is not. This is entirely for entertainment purposes and hopefully some uh, education around the edges. Everything here is made up. (laughs) Nothing is real. It's all Nothing is true. The only thing that's true and real are the cocktails. So I just want to make sure that we all uh, keep it real. And today we, we've got, uh, you know, even, even little kids joining us for happy hour. So this is the reality of uh, doing these things from, uh, from, our, from our homes and enjoying some good intellectual conversation on various, uh, various topics of uh, current events and whatnot. So with that aside, let's uh, roll the riffs. What are we I know f- today? for me, I just went with, an, you know, an absolute, just a nice premium beer with natural ingredients the the k brew right right out of the cayman islands and uh that's what i'm uh, sipping on today it's it's hot out there it's summertime now and a beer a cold beer seems appropriate so my beer there. fridge was empty so i'm now i'm relying on um <clears throat> a uh nice cognac which you know wow is good. And nice apparently too i don't know i mean we should probably share some of this insight yeah. um it's a little off topic, but uh, we have it on very good authority that the nitric oxide that comes off of yeah. cognac um, can help battle SARS-CoV. So That's right. it can That's right. Um, prevent onset, reduce symptoms, um, reduce the reduce the length of symptoms. Um, so, you know, maybe we'll share some just some cognac? research or something. But yeah, well, it's, it's the nitric and oxide brandy. and. and Brandy. I have my Brandy. backup bottle here just in what case about, they run out of beer. What about scotch? No. Nope. I do a lot of that. I, I'm basically immune from it. No. It Did is, you hear that? That, uh, that's German, immunity for a different that reason. German medical doctor that was interviewed, like, I don't know, two months ago, I shared with this, with you guys, where he was asked, what what can you do? He's like, drink lots of uh, whiskey. Mm-hmm. Just it has... It it can help yep. you just, you know, disinfect. It was like almost it like a... With COVID, but it just makes you feel a lot... Yeah, less not, stressed about the whole situation. Not bleach, but it is. I went. Apparently. I went into the Far East, got some Sapporo, solid nice. beer. Yeah, that's that's some some nice uh, some some Zen coming that's in right. from the. And I'm doing the 12 uh, year um, 
I don't know, Cardu single malt. Yeah, okay, I'm going like hardcore because I think I have the COVID. I decided not to go. Good I decided not to go to the yeah. clinic today. I'm going to give it one more day before I give up. And That's the second like, time you told us you think you have it. So at this point, are you kidding? It's like the sixth time he's told me today. Right. So <laughs> no, no. I mean, throughout the pandemic, he's, <laughs> this, this is cognac the is, time. is quite good. I, I, you're right. The cognac has a certain it's, flavor. It's, to it. I might switch up the way. It's, it's just the fact that the daily scotch every hour on the hour. Mm. Yeah, mm. Okay, what's so, the topic, guys? So, gentlemen, how about how about a little gold? How about a little? Yeah, I'm breaking up today. I didn't see the close. How about a little uh, disaster recovery? I, I don't know. Let's have a peek here. What we did at coming into the it end, was right? slightly higher, much to my chagrin, given what I've been putting out there recently. I oh, think it beat it beat treasuries today. <clears throat> yeah, at your own risk, Rod. <laughs> <laughs> I have twenty basis points. I've been warning you. Yeah. Yeah. Don't so. Yeah, I don't know. We, we always have this gold debate internally. Um, I am a see, see what we're going to talk about, I think, is the difference between the valuable place that gold has in a portfolio from a diversification standpoint and the almost religious zealotry around this yellow metal that people seem to think is the, the, the one thing that solves all of our problems. And I love these people. I, I, they're friends of mine. You guys are somewhat that, i.e. Richard Brent sometimes. Friend, no, I don't think that's the case. Oh God, I've, I've been on the gold. The amount of time I've been on the gold show me that 20-year that chart that gold beats everything else. Uh, I, I, it I'm does. Like, yeah, no, I know. I remember from, from, <laughs> I remember from yesterday. <laughs> it does. It does. I'm always amazed. Everyone's so, so enamored with, with U.S. stocks, and, if you, and they are enamored with being long-term investors. You know, gold has outperformed U.S. stocks over the last 20 years. Uh, funnily enough, over the last 10, not the case. So it's, it's interesting. We have a recency bias and there. Not and the case over the last 30 or 40 either. So it's, you know. Fair, fair comment. You're right. Yeah. So, so it, <clears throat> picking the start point and picking the end point is very important in winning this argument. <laughs> Let's be very, very clear. Framing is a very important thing here. Well, I think you guys should get your whole macro story off your chest. I mean, you know, you, you've got strong, passionate views on this. We should we should share the macro story. Um, and I don't want to spoil the 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 ending by 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 framing this too too much, right? So come right. on, out with it. How how do we feel about gold and why? Well, okay, so gold has a fixed production function and it's about 1.6 to 2%. So there is all the gold that's existing year, in the world. Yes. That's yeah. Okay. Compounding. So all the gold that's been been mined by the pharaohs and stolen from the Aztecs still exists today, by and large. And um, it was considered this uh, sort of pillar of monetary policy because it had this fixed rate of growth. And that fixed rate of growth sort of matches the economic rate of growth that you might have. And thus it allowed for there to be some control over the supply of money. And then you come into, you know, Ray Dalio's 1971 story, is it, where, the, you know, they come off the gold reserve and you have fiat currency. And now you have the ability um, to manufacture currency without any sort of constraint. Um, then so, so that's, you know, so gold has there's no debt tied to gold. There's no you know, you can't make it appear out of thin air. Uh, so it provides sort of a, a governor on the way in which you can, you know, manufacture gold. Or produce produce currency and withdraw currency, currency from. Oh God! Now I'm trying to listen to our our podcast like I was told to do. One second. That is narcissism. You've got to mute at, that. At, you just got to mute that. 
that is just I want to watch myself while I talk in many screens. So, 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 so I've already seen some of the comments. Digital gold, digital gold, Mike. Get on the faster horse. Uh, we'll get there. We'll get there. Story. I can get. By the way, I can get behind having having like so, having so endless hours of conversation about Bitcoin. Okay. Yeah. Where I can't get behind. We'll having get Conversation by we'll get there. But, we'll get there. So I mean, this is this sets up the macro opportunity for gold. Um, it, it has a, a, a place as currency for a long period of time in the human psyche. Um, so so there's that there's the monetary policy, and then there's you know the ability to bear debt and how that has um, sort of effects on different asset classes, and the ability for central banks to create money in this fiat um, currency that world that we live in. And so you know how do we how does gold behave? In this new sort of monetary, uh, what do we call it? Modern monetary theory uh, period or postmodern modern monetary theory. <laughs> um, and so there's a lot of lot of uh, pretty smart people. Ray Dalio, you know, says if you don't own gold, you either don't understand history, you don't understand economics. It's a broad sweeping statement. It's a nice soundbite, um, but it does have a unique position. It has unique characteristics. When we look at our market target. And we look at those two dynamics of, inf- of inflation and growth, and we look at the regimes, and we look at what asset classes have sort of structural relationships in those regimes. You do see that gold has some unique performance characteristics in different economic regimes. And I think we'll always come back to agreeing that there is yeah. something unique about gold, and there is a particular position in the portfolio for it. The, f- the fun conversation is, is you know, um, the one of, you know, when does it come in? We certainly have a systematic way to approach that problem, when we're going to allocate to it, the characteristics it has to have to be allocated to, when we would reduce positions, when we would increase positions, all that's systematic. And we love that part. Um, the narrative part is probably a bit more fun, a little bit more, um, um, you know, just to have a bit of a, a fun chat about that. And then Let's let's talk about the opportunity to transition to a digital gold. You know, we'll talk, I think, more next week, too, about Bitcoin. Um, you know, the production rate of Bitcoin, I think, is 1.8% of the halving. In another four years, that halving is 0.9%. So, again, you have this modern gold uh, created of the ashes of the 2008 crisis. And so that's a really interesting story as well. But I'll, I'll stop talking, and I hope that sets the table for some fun discussion now. Well, all that is, it makes sense to me. I think I, I, the reason we have these discussions internally and the, and, and the reason that I have, uh, I, I'm just, the, the whole gold bug thing, because we're surrounded by them in Canada. I, I'm a strong believer in gold for the reasons that you explained, specifically the fact that I left Peru because of the inflation going from 20% to 7,200% in six months. Like it is a real thing. I see the pain. I see the value in owning gold in a period of high inflation, hyperinflation. The, the issue, so I remember um, when I first got into the business, I, I, I was in constant conversations with this one guy that I, wa- I wanted him to be a mentor so badly, right? And I wanted him to teach me about investing and, and how to think about the, the world of investing. And I kept asking him, like, what should I read? And he gave me a book on gold, the history of gold. I'm like, that was wonderful. And now I understand gold better than ever. Thank you so much. What else should I read? And then he gave me another book on gold. And then, and then another one, and then, like I, he gave me seven books on gold, and he, and he said, "This is all you need to know about managing money, right? This is all you need to know about the. the it's the only thing that solves all of your problems." Why is he here with us today? I, I, I brought it up. I brought it up, but I think it was last minute. We came up with with uh, with this maybe last week, but I'll, I may bring him in. 
the problem I have is that I feel like gold has a very unique place in asset allocation, specific, especially for periods of high inflation. But this idea that it's also the best thing to own at all times, including deflation, including when there's economic growth, and, uh, and, and when it's not doing well, it's okay, it's only momentary because the world's going to blow up anyway. The other thing that bothers me about the gold bug uh, conversation is that they are Bane from Batman, right? They they are they are they 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 don't they talk about how the world is going to blow up it's going to be terrible but they're secretly they just can't wait to be right and see the world fall to ashes the fourth turning and so on so that they can be finally proven right of this explosive growth in gold and this mentor that sounds like the straw man that sounds a little bit like the straw man version of it but keep going this again I I am a fan of gold so I. I can defend many aspects of gold. I, li- I just literally, like last week, I had this podcast with uh, uh, Things That Make You Go Home. What's his name? Um, Grant. Grant, right? And he interviewed four experts. And they were all just ready for the apocalypse. Like, it, it was, they were, I'm not, it's not a straw man because it came out of, the, like, their mouths, right? And to the point where even Grant, who's a gold bug, was like, eh. This is a little much. Yeah. And then there was a guy that called that that said, look, it's all gonna be it's gonna be hyperinflationary in the next year or two. And then there was one other guy that's like, listen, I'm not as I'm, that's not me. He's very passionate about that. It's certainly the world is gonna end and we're not gonna have any currencies left at all. It's like, oh, so that's the level down, is it? Right. So this is my pet and, and even now in this particular period, the last year or so, where everybody's like, gold killing it. See, I told you so. And I'm like, is it so exciting when treasuries are still doing better than you over the last 12 months and through this scenario? I mean, but it's close, is- though. It's close, though, right? And the problem is you can't inflate, you, you can't print gold ad infinitum as you can with the U.S. Treasury. I'm happy with the inflation story. I'm just not so sure it matters that much any other time. Well, where well, are we headed? About the deflation story. Yeah, in the deflationary okay. period... Not as good as we can imagine. months, sure. Is is it an or? Is it an and? Right. I, I think that's a good point. It, it, it's not gold or treasuries. It's both in some kind of equilibrium. But in in defending gold, I think when you imagine that central banks, even before COVID struck, were already dealing with secular stagnation to some degree expanding uh, their, their balance sheets as much as they could. And now that's been just exacerbated by the pandemic and there's nowhere to run. The dollar is, the, 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 the Fed is printing money at the fastest rate than any other uh, central bank. And it's, and it's going to be a bigger than neighbor sort of situation. Other central banks are going to have to react because there's not enough growth to go around. So they have to devalue their currencies. And gold is... In, in my opinion, it has to be thought of as a currency in this environment. And it's the one currency that is, doesn't have a central bank behind it, printing its way and, and flooding the market with it. So that, I mean, yeah, that's just yeah. the easiest and, and, and most obvious way to, to defend having a position involved. It was the same discussion being had in 2008, right? Eric Sprott going out and saying that this is, we'll never see gold below whatever the price was at the time, the thousand. And um, and it just you know there's more there's there's a a lot of um, there's a lot at stake for the world for that 
gold being a, a currency at all in any way whatsoever, right? Like not you, in you, any way. If there's growth, I mean, we we know in the last decade or so since the the depths of the great financial crisis, growth, gold hasn't done. It did a little bit, and then it crashed quite a bit. I think around 2012 it was, but I think it's maybe not so much gold being the best asset. I mean, there's also the side of treasuries and 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 the fact that you have now treasuries being uh, held majorly by foreign governments as opposed to domestics. Like this is a unique thing about the, the U.S. Treasury that other central bank, uh, other uh, sovereign bonds like the Swiss, the, the British, the Chinese, the Japanese, and Euro areas, they're mostly held by their domestic investors. The U- U.S. Treasury is mostly owned by foreign holders. And so that becomes a little bit of a, an issue as well, especially since they can either default on the bond, which historically tends to be a problem, right? Mm-hmm. Especially if your holders are, are, are domestic. So Argentina is going on their eighth default, I think. And it's easier for them because they have a lot of their uh, bonds being issued abroad. In the case of the U.S., you can't really imagine the U.S. defaulting on their bond because they are the, the global reserve currency and they benefit from, from doing so. And it's likely that they're going to try to create some sort of inflation. The Fed is already indicating that they're more comfortable dealing with inflation. The problem is right now it's all deflation, right? So no one can, no one can see this inflationary environment coming around. Let them go ahead and, and try. <laughs> it's been, we've been crying wolf about this forever. Isn't that what they've been wanting to do for the last 10 years? Weren't they desperate for inflation? They've accelerated the printing press. And the velocity of money has also collapsed with everything that's going on. The problem is when this velocity comes back up. Well, it's one of those things that this is one of those problems that it it happens all at once. It doesn't doesn't sort of um, creep up and slowly get in. It it, it becomes a problem. Everyone perceives it as a problem. And then it, 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 it really is one of those items where you have to question the opportunity. Well, it's probably in any strategy, preparation versus prediction. You know, I know that in our, you know, if you think about our more risk parity type prioritizing of preparation, where you're having that diversity built into the portfolio at all times and suffering the languishing returns of whatever asset classes happen to be out of favor because they're not in the regime. Um, Then, you know, we have asset, we have allocations to gold all the time. And they drag sometimes and they shine sometimes. Um, and so, so that's your first step is if you, you know, you want some inoculation, you have it there all the time. And then the question is, as you say, well, Rod, can you predict it? How might you predict it? What, what, what strategies might you use? Um, it's interesting as interest rates come to zero as an asset class. So, so we have the macro picture where there's a lot of money being uh, added to the system and there's a finite amount of gold. So, you know, it, it, it logically at some point the gold should be worth more because there's the same amount of gold and there's more money sloshing around the system. Um, but, but moving that forward and saying, okay, so you have this, um, uh, now I forgot what I was going to say, this, uh, <laughs> fixed amount of gold, um, without any debt or claim against it. Now oh, I lost my train of thought. I'm sorry. But I think it's the argument for scarcity, right? Oh, I think you're on mute, Adam. I think what you're trying to, yeah. the, the, the argument is pretty simple, right? Like there's units of currency and these units of gold. And there's, if you expand the number of units of currency relative to the units of gold, then obviously gold is going to be worth more units of currency. 
right? So that that really is right. the the entire argument for gold. And so really, the whole idea of deflation versus inflation um, needs to be divided between this idea of like economic inflation or a rise in CPI that can happen because of scarce inputs, whether, you know, in, inputs can be commodities, it could be labor, like rising labor costs, or it could be a um, decline or, or sorry, a rapid increase in the supply of the units of currency, right? So governments are trying to create inflation by creating units of currency that then supposedly increases the price of goods and creates demand for those goods as investors want to buy them today rather than risk the potential for the, the having to pay up more for those goods and services tomorrow, right? So this gold is a funny thing with inflation because it's not really tied to inflation so much as in a, def, in, in a deflationary scare, like for example, the 1930s, governments are printing money in order to off reduce the risk of deflation because there's all this debt outstanding. They want to reduce the unit value of this debt. They do that by trying to reduce the value of the currency. They print more currency. Therefore, you got more units of currency per unit of gold. The price of gold goes higher. But you're, it's not that you've got inflation. You've got deflation. But the governments of the world are trying to offset this deflation by creating more units of currency, right? In the 1970s, you've got this massive inflationary scare. It's not, I actually am not quite sure what the dynamics were that drove, I mean, gold outperformed inflation, it outperformed other commodities. It was by far the best performing asset in the 1970s. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it compounded at sort of 18% a year for the yeah, decade from 1970 to 1980. But I think it was a function of leaving the gold standard as well. Right. Yeah, so that's fine. We say that, but what are the what are that what happened after the gold standard was abandoned that precipitated this large rise in gold? It must have been a reduction, or sorry, a, a massive increase in the in the units of currency that precipitated this. At no, the well, same it time, had all these other inflation dynamics France, happening. France with was taking a look gold at that. And, sorry, with oil, etc. But. It was that, and France was was eyeballing the amount of money printing. I think it was, um, it was around Nixon and around the war, and they're like, "All right, cool. I can still exchange X amount of dollars per unit of uh, gold. I'll start doing that right away." And at that point, that's when it it all went to hell, right? So that all that has happened, right? Like this is from this is kind of like the Yuval uh, Noarari thing, right? A lot of these gold <clears throat> bugs were saying how. Uh, you know, the uh, one question was, when are people going to realize how important gold is? And one of the guys said, listen, I actually have given up. I don't think investors in the world will ever recognize what the value of gold really is. And they'll continue to use this fractional reserve system until it falls apart. Well, I'm like, well, it's all a construct. We just made up this that this gold thing is the thing to care about in inflation. It could be many other things. It used to be salt. Well, we didn't. We didn't quite make it up. We as observed human, it over five thousand years. As a human race, we've uh, we've made it up. It's existing longer than any currency history, or, or any debt. Over history, no, no. we've used many different types. Yeah, we, we've evolved gold from shells. From shells, monkeys sure. trading shells on the beach. Sure, it's all made up, right? Like we all. So we if, if the reality is that the world has decided that the fractional reserve system is the way to go. 
And there's also dynamics. We can clearly we can print a lot of money while there's deflation and credit to the point where you know we need to understand those dynamics before gold even becomes a factor. Um, what if the world has decided that gold is no longer important? There's only like a, a few people that really care about it that much that they need to talk about it day in and day out for for their livelihood. Well, I, central I, banks are. Still I think you're right. By the way, my point is that I think the right. The world has decided that they don't they don't care that much about gold and. Their narrative is well. The price the, action would I, disagree with you, but there, so in the world, there's what, what there's ten ten trillion dollars worth of gold approximately in the world. So I, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that it's irrelevant. I mean that, that I doesn't make sense. And, there, and, there's, and there's central banks that that own a portion of it. I remember what I was coming back to Adam as well because I think you know when you're talking about the different ways in which gold can manifest returns. And there's this sort of, it's a Jekyll and Hyde asset class. Sometimes it, it acts like a zero coupon bond. Uh, and then sometimes it acts like, like some sort of growth asset. So you had the inflationary 03 to 08 period. And all of a sudden it's this growth asset in the inflationary growth paradigm. And in the deflationary paradigm, it acts sometimes as a zero coupon bond with no claim or, or no, no, no uh, fear of default until such time as you get some sort of liquidity squeeze and then it acts like an equity asset again. So it's, it's really got this very, very difficult behavior. And I think we saw that too. Um, I only saw pieces of this. I know you guys were working on our clustering algorithm when that, and I saw the clusters and how gold sort of sat between the treasury personality and the equity personality. And that's probably something to actually dig into a little bit from the standpoint of, of you know, someone asked, well, okay, you've got gold. What else can you use? Is it tips that you can use? Um, and maybe there's combinations of asset classes and maybe there's some currencies that might act more like gold. So I'd, I'd be keen to hear any sort of um, insights that you have from some of the cluster analysis that you guys looked at. And I think there's also one other factor that's kind of different this time, which is that you have a very, very low yield now on treasuries. And now gold has a negative carry, right? You have to store gold, you have to dig it up, process it, and then put it in a vault and, and guard it. So it, it doesn't have a positive yield like bonds do. Well, some bonds in the world do have negative carry now, um, but that's an interesting sort of, you know, the European Union area has, you have some negative carry on bonds. So that's an interesting new playing field that really hasn't been entered into, which will be a very interesting um thing to see price action pursue. Yeah, where the opportunity got, cost argument, right. I think, is the becomes the crux of the matter when you're seeing uh, interest rates across the globe come down as much as they are. And the, right. I mean, the, the credit worthiness of the U.S. has started to kind of come into the spotlight, in, in, into question. I think we're so far from that becoming kind of front and center stage. But, you know, you start to, to ask how long can they keep running this debt, this uh, uh this deficit, especially when you have foreign holders of your debt, I mean, th this uh, situation with China, all of a sudden, China could decide to give up part of their, their U.S. Treasury holdings to yeah. in, in sort of a currency uh, a war situation uh, with the U.S. And what does that do for, for, for Treasury? So I think there's a, there's a stronger argument now that you might want to diversify part of your treasury holdings if you have them into something that can't be defaulted. Like gold. Upon, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, and, and so I would add that, yeah, no, I, I was just going to add that we, we, we've, I think recently talked about the commitment, commitment of traders report and the fact that the producers have never been, uh, have never had such a long, a, a large short 
position in gold because they're probably you know they're they're, they're hedging their 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 exposure to the metal. But that adds another uh, layer of complexity to it. And obviously, gold has, as you mentioned, the Jekyll and Hyde thing. It does have equity-like volatility, mm-hmm. so it does it does have that oscillation that we've we've, we've talked about, which treasuries typically don't have. But it, it also becomes this hedge against a phase shift yep. in the economic paradigm. It's interesting in March, though, and I see some conversation going on in the uh, in the panel on yeah. on okay, um, YouTube. Right. So so like and subscribe, you guys. But but yes, we, we agree. The um, um, that February March period was a liquidity squeeze. Even Treasuries actually had some wobble. Well, yeah, let's, let's, let's off, rewind off back. Treasuries. The question is: the question it was. Uh, can you get, can you expand on what happened? There was a moment there that gold didn't help, right? It was a, right. it, it lost money. And then yesterday it actually, in the beginning of the day, not the end of the day, but the beginning of the day it was acting as an offset and, um, and why that happened. So you were, you were, you were explaining that, right? Yeah, it wasn't well, just I think gold. That's it the, was, it's, it's a liquidity thing. Sometimes it becomes a source of, of, of uh, capital where I, I need capital because other stuff's going down. So I, I got to get stuff from where I can get it from. Um, in it that happened case, in March. Well, that, that, that was my point about. earlier. Along too, with treasuries. Mar- March with was exactly that. So March was a liquidity crisis. And so this is the Jekyll and Hyde type situation where in a liquidity crisis, and what was so unique about March is even off the run treasuries had difficulties. But yeah. if you were the on the run treasury, uh, would be that the note of the bond you were you were okay, but anything. Well, let, me, let, me show a chart. let me show a chart on you. Sure. Let, let me know. Go ahead. Um, can you guys see that? So that's from my my tweet um, mm-hmm. the other day. That this is just basically shows the twelve month um, look back of gold and blue. 30-year treasuries in yellow, and then 10-year treasuries lever to the same volatility as gold. Okay. My point here was just not, let's not talk about not about inflation, but the idea that uh, you know the moment the gold starts doing well, the gold bucks are like, it's amazing. This is the only thing you need to own. And my point here was like, no, you're still being beaten by something, and it's it was a ten year treasury levered up. Uh, but you can see just back to the original point of what happened in March that it wasn't just gold that took a beating when it was a fire sale of everything. You the markets were so bad, liquidity was gone. You needed to sell whatever you could in order to, to to cover your margin, and so you see the everything just sold off for those periods, and that happens every time. It happened in 08. Every time there's a liquidity event, everything gets blasted, right? Um, so, you know that's what happened then. And the question, then the follow-up question was, what? Why did it do well yesterday? Well, because yesterday wasn't a liquidity event. It was just a bad day in the markets, and uh, when there's a bad day, the first reaction is to go to safety. The better bet was to go with long bonds. You did you, treasures are up like one point one and a half percent, and gold started off well and ended up uh, uh, not doing so well at the end of the day. I think it was negative by the end of the day. So anyway, that's that's the difference between a a normally working not a very liquid market and and using these asset classes to to have non correlated return streams, and then those moments where the only thing that works is a little tail protection. <laughs> but look, right? I mean, we're 30 minutes in, so it's I think we should sort of reveal the um the the true context for this discussion, right? Which is always the resolve way is why choose, right? Like the what the the holy grail here is to have diverse asset classes that are fundamentally designed 
to thrive in very different economic environments. There are environments where gold does very, very well and treasuries do very, very poorly. The 1970s obviously are a very good example. There's also periods where gold does well and treasuries do well. 2000, part of 2008 was that, the 1930s were that type of environment. Um, and then there are times when stocks and bonds both do poorly. There's times when stocks and bonds both do well, gold does poorly. In reality, you wanna have all of these things in the portfolio and Mike referred to this earlier in the um, in, in the discussion. He referred to our, our target plot. And maybe if I can just share my screen. No, definitely this, share that because it's not it's not intuitive if you haven't seen it before. This is what Mike's referring to. And so when you think about the idea of owning, of, of creating a portfolio, really what you want is to maximize your opportunity for diversification. Mike, you always say preparation over prediction, right? Mm -hmm. And I think I think we all agree there are ways that we can make reasonable forecasts using systematic methods, trend and carry and skewness and seasonality. And there's, there's a wide variety of different systematic ways that you can probably create an edge in your ability to estimate the, the direction or estimate returns over the sort of near-term future. Mm -hmm. But you don't want to start there, right? You want to start with, I want a universe of markets that are designed to flourish in very different market environments. So if you just sort of take a simple framework of dividing economic regimes into periods of rising and falling inflation, rising and falling growth, then you obviously want to start with the idea of having access to different markets that are fundamentally designed to do well in each of these different quadrants, rising inflation and accelerating growth, um, slowing inflation, accelerating growth, slowing inflation, slowing growth, rising inflation, slowing growth. And there's, you know, different markets have fundamental properties that make them um, highly and, and specifically useful in each of these different quadrants. And so I do find it interesting, just while we're on gold, that gold does end up in three of these different quadrants, right? So Gold does seem to have utility in, as Mike says, it, it is a real Jekyll and Hyde type of acts, uh, type of um, uh, market. But you don't want to just think about owning gold or when should I own gold in isolation. You want to have access to gold. You want to have access to diversified commodities, emerging market bonds, tips. Somebody mentioned in the comments tips, emerging equities, all the different equity markets of the world, Right. Different regions of the world have equity markets that thrive at different times for different reasons. Everybody seems to focus in on their domestic equity market. We got to free ourselves of that type of thinking. So, you know, I just want to I want to throw this out there is it's while we've had a lot of fun sort of debating the relative merits of gold over treasuries or, or gold as a standalone asset class. That's really not the way that we think about this at Resolve. And it's not the way that we think that investors should think about um, no. owning gold or owning uh, treasuries in general. So, oh, and, and I think that, that the, what I was saying was, um, so obviously in the last couple of weeks, I've been responding to the dogmatic nature of the, the, this magic metal that, that, that solves all problems. Right. So it, it really is a great diversifier. And even in this period, it has been a great diversifier. Um, in, in fact, in the, you said it, it does actually act well in three out of the four quadrants. But it does, out of the three quadrants, it does the worst in deflationary scenario. You're still better off with sovereign 
responds when there's panic uh, on the street. So you just can't, I, I haven't been able to convince a gold bug that that's still a good idea. There's one, I think um, uh, Raul Pal has his 12 months, his top two choices are, I think, uh, treasuries and gold. So there you go. There's one guy, one global macro guy that sees the benefit of owning both in this type of scenario. And also, even if they do, um, you know, there, there, one question was tips. What does better, tips versus gold? Actually, depends. This is a lot of like the path dependency that we talk about, right? Well, it what are tips? Tips, are, tips are a calculation, right? But, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, it depends on a bunch of things, right? Like if you think about like possibilities here, one could be that CPI actually grows to the point where tips are a really great option to to really hedge the true underlying inflation. And it may also be a period where the government wants to confiscate gold. And so tips does a better job than gold does because somehow gold is just not tradable anymore. It's capped to some sort of um, also, I think tips tips hedge a different type of inflation. And by the way, yes. Corey's yeah, yeah, been chirping at us in the comments, so I just I just called him out and said, you know, if you want to have want to have a say here, you might as well join us. So so Corey's yeah. invited to to come on the call here. But um, like I think I think tips hedge CPI inflation. You do get inflation in a scenario that is led by um, extreme demand growth. You've got a um, demand for labor and demand for goods. And it's, um, you, you know, you just, it's, it's, a, it's slack, a strong Corey. growth environment. Check your slack, Corey. Hop on. Corey's, Corey's not in, not into it at the moment, but anyways, <laughs> I, I do think that you've got to like, again, right. It's not either or the gold bugs tend to be right. all over gold and hate treasuries. The treasuries guy tend to hate, you know, be all over uh, 60, 40 portfolios and hate gold, but they play a role in different economic environments there will come a time when gold will, just like the 70s, when gold will deliver double-digit returns for 10 years and stocks and bonds will both deliver zero or negative returns together. And there'll be no excuse for not having at least contemplated what are the rationales for owning gold. And then, I mean, the other thing to think about is that gold is, is just so pathetically under-owned in portfolios, yes. right? Is, at least some true. people own Either, either on at least a, a broad exposure to high-grade bonds. And so there's a there's some treasuries in there buried underneath the mountain of credit risk, but there's some treasuries in there, right? But nobody, the, the gold is so chronically under-owned, even people with a strategic allocation to commodities, most of the commodities indices are now role-efficient commodities. So for example, the PDBC, the Deutsche Bank, uh, efficient role commodities indices tend to focus on the commodities with the highest roll yield. Gold has a long-term negative roll yield. Almost invariably, there are very few times when gold has positive roll. So you're constantly fighting this negative roll yield. A lot of the smart commodity indices will underown gold for that reason. So you know, you've you got to be really. Why don't you own physical gold? Thing, right? Like, why not own the physical gold? Um, because then you avoid all. In fact, this is a big argument: is even if you buy ETFs, you're not getting. You're, you're still screwed at the moment that you need the most because you're not going to be able to get. It's well, not this is be this is the advancement in some of, in some of the ETFs, right? So GLD actually holds the physical gold. Uh, Fizz, um, the Sprout products 
actually own the gold and subject to certain minimum uh, delivery, you can actually have it delivered to your door. Uh, now, in the age of confiscation, I, I think in the, in the Great Depression, there was a decree by government that a safety deposit box would not be opened without a, a, a marshal present from the IRS or yep. a person from the IRS present because that was a, a moment of confiscation. I'm pretty sure that's a real thing. Um, <laughs> it's possible. That's possible. I, that I that read it be, in seven gold books. That, that could I be read. entertainment. So just keep that in mind. Um, and going back to but, tips, do, do tips have enough liquidity uh, or anywhere near the liquidity that gold has? I, I was just curious because no, that's a really good. That's a really good point. Actually, I mean that the total aggregate global inflation protected bond supply is a fraction of the size of gold. And so, yeah, I mean, look, the government issues inflation protected bonds to the extent that there is relative demand for inflation protected bonds versus nominal bonds. Now we've had thirty years of deflation or disinflation. So, what do you think the demand is currently for inflation protected bonds? It's very mm-hmm. small. So yeah. the government create can create inflation protected bonds. You mean Bridgewater can create a tips? Because <laughs> I think it was Bridgewater that forced their hand, right? Well, they certainly consulted on it. Worked and said in, that worked in, for worked it. in yeah. uh, well, I think they were the initial order. But I think there's another great, um, uh, great. There's several great points there that were sort of layered on top of one another. Um, one, I think, is that if you were to look at portfolios today and you were to look at the last ten years of performance where that performance has come, you're going to find portfolios that are, have a, you know, sort of a, have a strong home country bias in, in North America. Um, they're going to have significant exposures that what's done very well over the last 10 years that creates an overconfidence in the current set of circumstances and sort of puts blinders on the potential to include these other asset classes, which by the way, I mean, I've been circling the drain in this, in this, in this uh, field for, you know, getting on to um, 30, 30 Don't years, say 25 years. And it, it's funny, like I, I came into- I And yeah, came who into, has all the gray hair? Yeah. <laughs> I came yeah, into, Honestly. Came in in 1990 is very fresh and, and uh, you know, Japan was all the rage. And uh, 10 years later, tech stocks mm-hmm. are the rage. And then all of a sudden it's, it's the resource boom. And now we're back at tech stocks again. And it just seems to me that every decade, you know, whatever was the actual shining star, beautiful baby, sexiest lady, um, it doesn't often repeat. I mean, it can, it certainly will. And it, I'm not, we don't inform our systems based on any kind of 10 year overlay like that. But it seems to me that portfolios are particularly underexposed to a certain set of assets. They're particularly overexposed to another set of assets. Underneath, if you look and say, okay, well, let's just step back. You look at stocks, you look at what happened in December of 2018, and you look at that low in stocks, you look at the low in stocks here. And they're kind of the same. You look at the low in gold in 2018, in December, and you look at the low of gold in this go around, there's a significant difference in those two lows, which reminded me of sort of 2008 when, you know, gold bottomed in October and was much higher in March and stocks bottomed. And then you had this run and from then until sort of 12, 2012, gold had a, a really nice run and sort of outperformed a lot of other asset classes and then had its peak, had its, you know, star moment where everybody 2011 know, got, got the last dollar in, <laughs> everybody get in the pool. Okay. The pool's full. And then, you know, the, the, the story turns over. Um, all I guess we're saying is you've got to have a, a methodology of at least if you're not considering these assets at all, 
that in our opinion would be a mistake. You have well, to have a way in which you're going to conclude them. Given, given that this, uh, I'm sure we are going to attract a lot of gold bugs. Uh, you know, I, I, what I want to point out is let's assume that the world doesn't end Bane styles, right? It doesn't blow up. Yeah. And the only thing that's going to be left standing is uh, what you can barter with gold. Then it, bec it has a utility from a portfolio construction perspective using non actual gold metal instruments like futures, um, where you can create a better portfolio and actually use the capital efficiencies that you get from futures contracts on gold in order to get better returns than you would from just simply owning gold, right? It, it, it just, it's so antithetical for for us to say, look, in a risk parity portfolio, you want to have some gold, you want to have an equal risk contribution, then you want to lever this whole thing up because leverage is just from the gold bug perspective. So it's just, that's the whole problem with the system. But if you move a step back from that and you just simply use it you become utilitarian about it and you, you use it as best you can with what what I think is appropriate from a portfolio construction perspective. There's a lot of value in owning gold in the right way, using instruments such as futures to get that exposure, right? And I think this and is- By the way, just to, to, to make a, a side note here, if you are thinking of this dystopic future where you're going to have to rely on barter, you don't want gold. You want a source of water, seeds, and bullets. So gold is not going to do much for you in that scenario. That's right. It's my basement, baby. Well, no, I, I don't need any gold because I have guns and I'll just come and take your gold. Exactly. Well, you're you're, you're going to lead in the zombie apocalypse for sure. Look at your size. <laughs> this football player. I don't know. Yeah. I'm, 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 a juicy, juicy. I'm a juicy piece of meat for them. I don't know. feed a family of zombies for days. So Corey's saying that we need to launch a trend-following ETF that um, includes an overlay of gold. I mean, come on. Well, Raise your hand, Adam, people. Is that something Adam, you're going to buy? What about your permanent portfolio? With the trend following overlay. I mean, you, you have done some work on that already. I mean, the, what we're coming to is that the permanent portfolio and, and uh, Harry Brown kind of covered a lot of this. Um, I, I, I don't think it's a coincidence that Harry Brown was, you know, the permanent portfolio was out there and, and Bridgewater sort of institutionalized it as well via risk parity. The way that those two ideas could be coincident discovery too. Fine. I'll buy that. Um, but it's just interesting yeah, but that. The difference, right, is, you know, there's they're subtle. Uh, certainly the framework is the same, right? Conceptually, Harry Brown said you want to own these four different um, asset classes. You want to own real assets like gold and, and um, uh, real estate. You want to own stocks. I think for Harry it was U.S. stocks. You want to own gold. You want to own cash, mm -hmm. right? Or sorry, you want to own bonds. You want to own cash. Yeah. And so for, as a framework, that makes a lot of sense, right? That captures the idea. What I always say Risk parity is about two things. It's about diversity and balance. The, um, the permanent portfolio captures the idea of diversity mm -hmm. really well. It's not comprehensive, yep, but you get most of the way there, right? You know, you'd want to add tips. You'd want to diversify geographically and this, yep. and that, whatever. But it, as a framework, it captures this idea of diversity. What it gets wrong is the idea of balance, Correct. right? I agree. So you're going to have treasuries and cash in the portfolio. Cash is a problem. Because how do you how do you judge the the risk of cash? But you know, obviously, if you're going to hold bonds in the portfolio alongside stocks and gold or commodities, stocks and commodities have five times the risk of treasuries. And so, if you're going to hold the old 50-50 in stocks and treasuries, ninety percent of your risk is in stocks, right? So the the risk parity concept just sort of says, I agree, we need diversity. But also, let's have some balance. Because if you don't have balance, then 
the bonds in the portfolio have no opportunity to express their unique personality. We acknowledge that they're designed to do well in very different economic environments. That's great. And, and you know, a lot of pieces have sort of shown that for 60-40, the bond sleeve offers no diversification benefits. And this is true. What it does is, is it reduces the volatility of the overall portfolio because it reduces the exposure to stocks. It's not because of the diversity that the bonds offer. In order to actually allow the personality of bonds to emerge, you've got to have bonds with a sufficient capital allocation so that both bonds and stocks are delivering the same amount of risk. Now bonds can pull in this direction, stocks can pull in this direction, and they will bounce each other off. And so, you know, when you had to look through this prism of how do bonds reduce risk on equities, it's dependent on how much bonds you've got in the portfolio relative to equities, right? And this is the idea of risk parity. Because it turns out that what you described is the correct way of describing risk parity. And one thing, I almost love the fact that we're doing a gold uh, conversation because people seem to forget that a key component of a risk parity approach is the commodity and gold section. Because it, it just it's amazing to me over and over and over again by the gold bugs and other gold macro players, how poorly they understand what risk parity is. In, in, in their minds is what happens when risk parity busts when correlations of bonds and equities go to one, right? That's a, that's a problem. Of course, it, it, nobody that, that executes risk parity doesn't know that. They know that in the 70s, bonds and equities were basically the same bet, just with different volatility. What they fail to mention is that once you include that third leg of the stool, that commodities part, and nobody wants to talk about that for some reason. I don't know if it's because they're being disingenuous or they just simply don't know. Once you include that, a key component actually gets you through those inflation, those periods of high correlation between bonds and equities quite nicely. Um, I think so it's I, a lamppost problem. A I think it's just that there's abundant availability of stock and bond data, right? You can just go to Ibbotson and download their annual data for stocks and bonds and, and run some real simple analysis. That, that's the only reason I can think of that but why I did everybody see, would I did see a big interview. misinterpret. But not only misinterpret, there's one guy, uh, I can't remember what company he's in, but I, he, I was in Real Vision and I saw risk parity, defending risk parity, whatever. And he goes on there and, and, and runs billions of dollars on this risk parity strategy that is just bonds and equities. And I'm like, you're the reason. You're the guy that just didn't implement it right. Right? This is the pre reason why, it's, why, why it, it, nobody gets it. Or maybe you are one of many. that are, maybe, there, maybe the truth is that risk parity is mostly run that way. Rather than you know that that kind of all weather style with the uh, with the gold component, mm -hmm. so you know I just wanted to kind of just put a little parentheses and talk about that because for all you gold bugs out there, we're with you. It's just not all. So, the way with you. so it, it's interesting. Uh, Sean C on out there has a, is suggesting that the potentially um, all weather has too large a weight on deflationary environments. So in that whole weighting scheme. Um, Maybe the deflationary aspect has too large of a weighting. It's um, recency bias, right? Historically, it, most it, likely. Um, yeah, I, I think it. I think this this probably goes back to Rod. You did, you know, ninety years of risk parity, and I think you can probably offer right. some insights on 
on those different areas um, because it, it it it's interesting. You would you would think that there was these challenging periods because of the bond exposure. And again, risk parity is always about having something killing it and having something killing you. And it is it is about and then collecting all the risk premia associated with all those asset classes while you've balanced off what's killing you and what's killing it. And so you well, balance off those risks and you you have this constant tailwind of those risk premiums. Go ahead. While Rodrigo's finding what he, what he's looking for, I'm I'm in the middle of writing a, a paper on how to think about risk parity. Um, because I think so many people judge the value of a risk parity strategy. Typically, risk parity is a, is a quantitative approach. So it's evaluated the way quants evaluate things, which is in terms of the historical performance of, of simulated backtests. And I think that is one dimension. But for risk parity, and I, you know, we could we could have many other episodes on this one topic, I know, but for certainly in the context of risk parity, it's not just about long-term performance. I mean, imagine you've got a, a situation where bonds have had 30, 40 years of just ridiculous sharp ratio, right? You've got this peak in bond yields in 1982, short-term bonds in in um, the high teens that have come down to, you know, the 10-year treasury now is at 0. 0.5, 0.6% as of whatever today or yesterday. And so this has been a massive tailwind. Also, you start with high bond yields. Most of the returns to bonds come from the uh, the coupons. So you've got a tailwind from declining yields, which raises the price of bonds. You've got, you start from these very high, high yields. So bonds themselves have done, have done very, very well with very low risk. So if you look at back tests of risk parity strategies, obviously risk parity strategies that emphasize a higher allocation to bonds are going to have better long-term performance over the history that we have for most markets, right? So my analysis goes all the way back to goes back to 1985, which doesn't include the 1970s. So it's been basically a really good time for um, for bonds. So you've got to look one level deeper. It can't just be about the long term performance of the, this risk parity strategy. By the way, I missed the whole point about the fact that there are an enormous number of ways to form risk parity portfolios. Right? There's the way that All Weather does it which is sort of looking at the economic fundamentals yeah. and forming a strategic allocation and then um, rebalancing. So when stocks outperform bonds for a while, Bridgewater will rebalance. They'll sell some, sell some stocks and buy some bonds and vice versa. Whereas a lot of risk parity strategies are trying to balance risk dynamically based on the current risk environment. And so when the volatility of stocks rises relative to bonds, they're going to reduce their allocation of stocks and increase their allocation of bonds, right? And then there's a whole other like portfolio construction step in terms of what type of risk are you trying to balance? You're trying to equalize risk across all the different markets, or are you trying to equalize risk across the different asset class clusters, stocks and bonds and, and commodities? Are you trying to allocate risk equally across the principal components or the emergent um, directions of risk in the portfolio? There's a variety of different ways to construct risk parity portfolios. So if you know this, there's a variety of ways to construct them. You run all these different simulations. You're going to find the ones that do the best are the ones that have the largest strategic allocation to treasuries. And to um, uh, Sean's point, Sean C's point, those are the ones that look the best. They also obviously have 
a major systemic overallocation to deflationary environments. They're going to do really well in deflationary environments, but they're going to underperform in inflationary environments. So one of the things I'm going to share my screen, one of the things that I'm trying to make a point about in this new paper is that um, there are, you, you know, you want to evaluate the performance of these risk parity strategies in terms of how they perform in the context of each of these um, regimes, right? So for example, this is the sharp ratio of risk parity strategies in different economic regimes, different- Wait, are, you are you showing your screen? I am. You're not okay, Ani, please uh, push that through. There we go. Can you guys see it now? Yes. Okay, because I can't see it on the live video. But anyway, um, I broke it down into inflationary growth, deflationary growth, inflationary stagnation, deflationary stagnation. And so this is just the sharp ratio that was observed for each of these different ways of forming risk parity portfolios. And I'm not going to go through all the different things that are going to be in the paper. But I'll just, as a sneak preview, the inverse variance, so the one sort of second from the left on the top, um, was one of the best performing strategies in sample from 1985 to, to 2020. The minimum variance type strategies, the HRSS MinVAR, very strong performing strategy. The HRP variance strategy, also very, very strong performing strategy in sample. By virtue of weighting based on inverse variance, these dramatically overweight bond type assets, which in the sample period have had a very strong uh, have very strong sharp ratio. But if you specifically evaluate the performance of each of these strategies broken down by how they performed in each of these regimes, that's where you reveal the fact that the inverse variance strategy, you know, highly sensitive to deflationary uh, periods, right? So what ones are more um, balanced in how they performed? The mentorship strategies, um, performed very well, for example. The Max Betts PCA correlation strategy. Perform, and I'll, I go into all of these strategies in the paper. But this needs to be taken into account. You don't want a strategy that purports to be risk parity, performs very well in the back test, but it's heavily reliant on a very specific type of market and a very specific it, type of regime. It's, it's far from the risk parity concept. Correct. It's not expressing risk parity, even though the back test looks strong. Anyway. Yeah. I'll, I'll give I mean, the up. intention is to make it risk parity, but inadvertently you ha are making a real, you're making a bet and you don't, and you may not even know it, right? In, in lots of strategies. That's exactly right. So, so what's interesting in the current, in 2020, what strategies did the best? Well, there's strategies that systematically overemphasized deflationary assets. Why? Because treasuries did very, very well during the market meltdown, but in commodities did very, very poorly. So, you know, if you look at a risk parity strategy and it did exceptionally well in Q1, you actually need to ask some questions. Now, I mean, you know, we run a risk parity strategy. It took a, it, it had a drop during the liquidation phase of the market meltdown, right? When both treasuries and gold went down with stocks in the third week of March. It was very, didn't last very long, rebounded very quickly when liquidity returned. And the market was able to reset back to some some form of macro efficiency, um, but I just wanted like as a snapshot, if a strategy yeah. did really well, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a good risk parity strategy. It just means that it was 
a strategy that was very well tuned to the type of environment we had this year. And so you know, like another it. question that's, yeah. that's come uh, up that I think I want to well, address here. Sorry, Mike, sorry. Well, I was going to say, we're coming up to our happy hour. So we're going to go beyond potentially. And there's a couple of questions. One is, one is I think, well, well tuned for you, Rodrigo, and one for Jason or, or for Adam, because Adam, you just had a discussion with Jason Buck. He's got a couple of comments. Do you guys think uh, permanent portfolio risk parity is forced Kelly betting? And, um, you know, the, I think you could probably read the other question. Then for you, Rod, I think the, um, you know, how do you understand uh, an all weather allocation uh, having some diversity from bonds when we approach the zero bound on interest rates? And I know that's one of your favorite topics. Yeah. So, yeah. The, so, the anyway, do you want to jump on that one first and then give Adam yeah, a, I think Mike, Adam the break? I want to think about Kelly. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> so look, because I, I just have it up. So I'll just go. Um, one of my, Perfect. one of the biggest, um, uh, knocked against risk parity. And I remember reading a GMO article years ago um, that was knocking risk parity because, uh, let me just share my screen here before I continue. But it was knocking risk parity saying, look, equities are the only place to be in a period where bonds are going to clearly do poorly, right? This is this was back just after the, tech cri- the credit crisis. And so share my screen now. Okay, so the... And what he was referring to was a period between 1940 and 1981, where the 10-year treasury lost 60%, right? This would, the thesis was, what if this happens and you're in an all-weather type portfolio or risk parity type portfolio where your returns are, are not even zero as the question is asked, but the returns are actually negative year after year. And for a full 40 years, having a total return of negative 60%. Right. And so this seems in theory, this is where like in theory, this makes total sense. And we stopped there. That piece stopped there. It said it made that statement. And then it said, look at how well equities did. That's what you needed to do. But the problem with that thesis is that you needed to predict. You needed to predict that equities were going to be the best performing asset class over the next 40 years. And the whole point of risk parity is that it's about preparation rather than prediction. You, you don't need to predict. And, and, and the question really is, once with empirical data, what happens when you still include an asset class that lost 60% as long as you have the other um, asset classes, right? So the myth being risk parity is just a levered bond portfolio, right? Especially if you're levered and you're going to have a bear market, why would you do that? And the way that people see it is a bond allocation that, that because of the low volatility has 120% allocation, Inflation assets only have 20% allocation because they're more volatile and equity allocation is 60. This is disastrous. Not only are you losing 60, you're losing 60 plus 20% more, right? But the thing about risk parity is that first of all, everything is seen through the risk parity lens. So from a risk budgeting perspective, and there's many ways as Adam just alluded to, um, from a risk parity perspective, this is in a perfectly in perfect balance, right? And what's interesting is that in spite of having a um, an allocation to... Uh, to that dragging market, if you actually created a risk parity portfolio that had the same level of risk as U.S. equities, you still had a lower drawdown, similar risk profile, and a higher rate of return during that 40-year period. Now, of course, this requires us, we had a drag in returns from bonds, right? But there was an offset by commodities and equities during that period. When you put that together in a non-levered way, you're not you're not hitting. In fact, you have a very low volatility portfolio because you're well diversified, and so you need the leverage to be able to 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 get 
to that, that level of risk that can compete with U.S. equities. And if we're able to do that, we see that we're, without having to make a decision up front as to, or a guess as to which asset class is going to do best, you end up with a portfolio that has the highest likelihood of performing well and surviving during that period. And so I, I, from a risk parity perspective, it really we know that one of our three buckets is going to do really, really poorly. The whole point is that we just don't know, and therefore we include them all. Now, that's, again, I just want to emphasize that this is risk parity. We also do factor tilts, and we do make bets. But from a risk parity perspective, I think this should be enlightening to a lot of people. Um, I'll just, just while you're on the theme, though, Rodrigo, someone's asking, well, what about right now? Why would anybody use risk parity when bonds have a zero expected return? And I think you've, you've had some yeah. good comments recently about that. Yeah, I did a little video on this. So, so this is my, my new series that I'm going to put out. It ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so, right? So we know for sure that yield, a starting yield at 0.75% when I did this is a bad idea, right? So uh, what is the point of owning bonds in your portfolio when the yield is 0.72? You're not going to give your clients the, the, the return that they need, right? Well, it turns out that like, when yields are that low, something else is better, right? Something is likely to, to have better valuations. And this is like probably at the bottom. Equities were better valuation than they are now. And so one of the other stools is probably going to perform well. Maybe we're here because of this chaos and we're going to print a bunch of money and gold ends up having an absurd sharp ratio. Gold and commodities have an absurd sharp ratio over the next 10 years. We don't know, right? But at 0.72, the first thing that comes to mind is there's no point. And, and I'm having these discussions. Like advisors saying, I'm completely getting out of my bonds or going, reaching for yield or I'm just going equities because I need that, that excess risk premium. And I imagine that this conversation was being had by, by German investors and advisors back in 2015 when their yield was a 0.79. And they said, what's the point of owning it? There's no value in owning this for investors, right? But fast forward five years and you can see that not only did we get lower yields, but we went to negative ter territory and continue to be in negative territory, right? So just be careful about what the value, what you think the value of bonds are um, in a portfolio when had you just owned the 10-year bond, right? Again, th this is a low vol strategy. This is a low vol investment. So again, we talk about capital efficiency and uh, and we talk about futures. So you can actually, if you want to match this through risk parity and get better returns, you can. But simply owning the 10-year bond, your client that you decided to take away, take off this um, this bond portfolio annualized at 4.65% during periods of negative yields, right? Because there's no theoretical reason why we couldn't envision a, a period where, where yields are negative and deflation and CPI is even worse. And therefore, well, the real yield is positive, right? And in fact, the Fed changed its language around there being a zero bound uh, over exactly. the last two years. And so why would they change their language that there's a zero bound? I, I, we don't so know. Look, we don't know. But we, you know, there, there's a, there's the possibility. So we have, first of all, we have precedent for negative rates. Second of all, if we observe, we, we have the Fed changing its language around a zero bound to a lower bound. Yeah. So, and this is, I mean, this is, this is what, if, if, uh, if the 60, 40 prevailed in Germany during that period, that 60, 40 portfolio did just fine and, and better than equities. Right. So again, it's, it ain't what you know, what you don't know that gets you in trouble. It's what you know for sure. And what everybody knows for sure is that it's not worth owning bonds right now because of the low starting yield. And I think that, that what I explained in that 40 year period where bonds lost money and make sure that you have proper portfolio construction can still get you there. 
and um, and just don't count on Bonds not being the best performing asset class over the next five years. We don't know. Anyway, well, except for gold. Except for gold. <laughs> the flip side to that too is that maybe bonds represent a discounting mechanism, which has pushed the valuations of all markets higher. That the expected carry for all major asset classes is much lower than normal. Precisely. And so you you know you can't you can't juice returns on these asset classes. The expected returns are all low. So at least you can minimize your the the risk you take in exposure to these asset classes. So you're going to have lower. Do you want to have low returns plus extremely high risk, or do you want to have low returns while minimizing the risk? Right. right. If you are in a withdrawal situation for you know retirees or uh, pensions or endowments, you know low returns coupled with high vol is mortally toxic. Low returns with very low vol is survivable. And so, so this is a this is a twist on this that I think few investors think about. They all they focus on the returns. If all returns are low, then you need to minimize volatility. And so that that's another major um, emphasis. Yeah. Um, so I, I think there's one last question that I think we need. I think it's important to cover is the thoughts on using the diversified disparity approach of assets collection sizing, but adding more tactical asset allocation style approach where you rotate in and out of various asset classes. I'm glad you asked. I mean, this is what resolve is all about. Like this, we've been doing this at the beginning. We didn't think that risk parity was good enough. Mom, everyday stuff. Yeah. Hey, thanks, mom. So risk parity, <laughs> risk parity is not good enough, and therefore we're going to be smarter than it and try to um, to tilt towards things. And the way we see it is we do it from a uh, factor-based perspective, right? We Adam alluded to it in the beginning. It's seasonality, carry, skewness, uh, value, um, mean reversion, a wide variety of things. So there is merit in that and in, uh, in our, our research, it shows a ton of value. But I will also say that in 2020, having that hubris of tactical asset allocation hurt you being prepared our risk parity six percent non-levered mandate is you guys hear my daughter by the way yelling at me i mind mine's waving at me at the anyway, door apparently i have to go but <laughs> if you guys like risk parity this year being humble and being this is why you men happy hour at an actual place not their home <laughs> Here, I'll share my screen now because because this is a really good point. And the, you can think about risk parity with trend overlay or whatever as TAA, but you can also separate them into risk parity with a risk budget to to trend and a risk budget to carry as an example. And you can expand it out into other factors. And I show this slide a lot in some of this, the CFA Society presentations that I've done over the years. Um, and this is a little bit dated, but um, if I could share my screen quickly. Um, tell me if you can, oh, we yeah, can see it. Okay, great. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this is, this is a long-term simple uh, trend strategy and a simple carry strategy. You can see that they are uncorrelated to one another and uncorrelated to risk parity over the long term. And there's some obviously some real magic in um, – in putting them all together, right? So, you know, trend on its own, a one sharp, carry on its own, a one sharp, add them to risk parity, um, and you, which has a 0.81 sharp on its own, and you push the uh, long-term sharp ratio 
up by about 30%, right? And this is just super simple implementations of all of these things. But it's just showing, I mean, the best way to think about risk parity is, is not necessarily as just stock bonds and commodities. It is a way to think about how best to, um, first of all, find diverse, uh, diverse sources of return that where the returns are derived from very different fundamental drivers, and then maximize your diversification across those different uh, sources of return. So that's all this is. You've, and you've implementation, got stocks, right? bonds, commodities, and then you add trend, you add carry, you add skew, you add seasonality, you add value, and on and on and on. And you just increase your expected um, return per unit of risk with the caveat, as Rodrigo says, that it doesn't always um, outperform good old U.S. equities, which is, have obviously been on just uh, an incredible tier over the last uh, 10 years. Um, somebody asked about forced Kelly vetting, and, and I'm, we're going to need to connect on this afterwards because I don't see how a uh, vol-based risk parity strategy represents a forced Kelly betting strategy. So I, you know, I guess we'll have to take this off. That's from Jason. that's from Jason Buck, who I knew. You, yeah, I know you just had a chat from. So you guys can connect after that. And yep, yeah, yep. I will. I will say that, and you should listen to the conversation with Jason uh, and I this this week. And we he did make the good point, and we did chat about the fact that uh, thinking about risk in ways other than volatility, as an example, uh, including divergent regimes versus convergent regimes. So divergent regimes, sort of crisis type regimes, uh, convergent regimes, uh, it can be considered sort of vol selling versus vol buying. So, you know, Jason runs a, a tailhead strategy. And, and so there is, I think, merit in thinking about adding a specific sleeves of strategies like trend and like tailhead strategies that are able to balance across convergent and divergent regimes Again, just preserving this idea of balance, but in a different framework for risk. So, yeah, there's there's one big uh, black hole there for risk parity, is when we touch upon it in the beginning, which is when liquidity dries up on everything, and everything needs to be sold down, right? Yeah. So, risk parity was holding up beautifully until those that two three day period where bonds, gold, everything that was acting yeah. as protection just went went south. Well, and not right. only that, there's there's the no, two areas. It's not, it's not just liquidity is certainly a source. Ninety four, yeah. the bond massacre, where there is a pervasive change in the discount rate across all assets, where the discount cash mechanism that's yeah. cash is king, where we're going to mm -hmm. change the discount rate for the calculation of every asset, that's going to have a negative impact on risk parity. There's no there's no uh, there's no you know sort of perfect portfolio scenario that you have everything hedged. Um, that, that just well, I don't know. There's private equity. <laughs> it's a straight line up. <laughs> there's made off. Do not get how well it's done during the COVID thing. Yeah, it just true. keeps on going up. Well, it's gone. I haven't seen a. I haven't seen a nav struck in about about a month and a half. But yeah. um, it's amazing. Yeah. It's so, so, so someone also asked about tips instead of regular bonds in a risk parity portfolio. That it's not quite right because the bonds and tips are are sort of. Assets that hedge two like sort of regimes. It's fifty yeah. percent treasuries and fifty percent kind of gold. Like it's it, yeah. so you get. And even then, that's not quite right because the calculation of inflation and tips is a very specific it's calculation, very, very specific versus versus what happens in gold. And so you know the the 03 to sort of 08 period where you had this rip in gold um, and and tips that 
it's not quite the same result. So Alex Shahidi has a great section in his book. Um, uh, you reviewed it, Adam. Well, I guess we yep. all did. It's called the Balanced Portfolio, or something like that, by Alex Shahidi. Um, he has a section on tips that really dissects it and talks about its true unique characteristics and why it's a problem and why it can be useful. But there's always a but there. That's a great we, read. We, by should, the way. we should have actually had him on, but I guess we should have re, we should rename this uh, this happy hour as Gold versus Treasuries and in and in defense of Risperity. We probably right. we yeah. got more vitriol. We just can't get away from it. We're like the gold bugs, but we're the disparity bugs. Guess yeah. it's we're, the, we're, the, we're the balance bugs. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. All right. Well, All that right. was a uh, another wonderful conversation with you guys. I'm, yes. Thank you, sir. And thanks so much for all the comments and questions. Actually, that was really yeah. really helpful. Helped to guide the conversation and um, prompted us to go in directions that we we probably wouldn't have gone otherwise. So. Uh, Keep up the great work on the questions and engagement. Really appreciate that. Yeah, and that's so. the point. And if you like and subscribe, it helps us get more people on this call, which levers the opportunity for get more great guests. And uh, and by the way, Jason, I, you know, I know that you did the podcast. You might as well hop on one of these happy hours too at some point in the future. Oh yeah, yeah. J- Jason's gonna be on a show yeah. for sure. For sure. All right, gents. Perfect, gentlemen. Right, guys. Have a great weekend. Happy weekend. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode in the show notes at investresolve.com forward slash blog. You can also learn more about Resolve's approach to investing by going to our website and research blog at investresolve.com, where you will find over 200 articles that cover a wide array of important topics in the area of investing. We also encourage you to engage with the whole team on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve and hitting the follow button. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email, social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that our podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time.